Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's Dry Cleaner Cast, we're joined by former Special Branch Officer from the Royal Ulster Constabulary, Dr. William Matchett. On this episode, we discuss the intelligence war against the IRA. If you're enjoying the work that we do on this podcast, please support us by becoming a subscriber. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. If you subscribe up to $5 a month, you'll be able to get access to a new show that we're producing that will come out quarterly called Need to Know. On Need to Know, we will be discussing the intelligence stories that have dominated the last quarter, and we'll be doing that with former intelligence and law enforcement professionals, and we'll get their perspective on the stories that have dominated the reporting of the intelligence community for that last quarter. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. William, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have you here. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself and your career in the special branch? Uh, yes. Um, I'm a, at the moment, I'm 53, so I suppose relatively young still. I was 30 years in the, the police, uh, the police in, in Northern Ireland. Joined in 1982, joined the Royal Ulster Constabulary in 1982. And basically left, uh, retired in 2014. At that stage, the the RUC had turned into the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Uh, in that period, it was r- roughly 20 years in, in Special Branch, the, the intelligence arm of the, the police. Excellent. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about Special Branch in a bit. So you served in Ireland, and um, there may be a few listeners out there who are not familiar with the terms Republican or Loyalist in relation to Irish politics. Can you just give us a brief kind of crash course in who the key players are in Irish politics? Yeah, well, I suppose the 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 politics of 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 Ireland and the sort of the partition of Ireland from sort of nineteen twenty one twenty two is we've ended up with the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So there's six counties in in the north of the this yeah. island that is part of the the United Kingdom, and. Essentially, there's two ethnic blocs here. You have nationalists, um, Irish nationalists, who would aspire to have a united Ireland, and you have essentially Ulster Unionists, or British Unionists, you could call them, um, who want to remain part of the UK, which is topical now with with Brexit, etc. And within those two broad blocs, within nationalism, you're going to have, like I would say, called a, a hard nationalism, which is republicanism. And then within the unionist bloc, you have hard, harsh unionism, which would be loyalists. Um, and that essentially, that's the ethnic lines. One wants to be part of the UK and one essentially doesn't. Uh, and the troubles, the, the recent conflict essentially was a 
was a contest between those those two philosophies. And the Troubles is the name given to the conflict in Ireland from 1968 to 1998, isn't it? Um, and apparently there were over sort of 3,600 people killed during this time and thousands more injured. So um, can you give us an overview of sort of what caused the Troubles? Yeah, it's, it's, there's different people actually uh, would say when the Troubles did start that you know, some people will put it at 68 from the, the civil rights protests and... Um, when the, the police overreacted and the state overreacted um, to, to civil rights protesters. Um, what, what I've done in the book, I've actually started the, the conflict from December 1969, which was the formation of the provisional IRA, and essentially when they took up arms to overthrow the state. But, the, yeah, the Troubles, it was, it was a brutal period. At, at its height, there was... a. There was one terrorist incident, you know, every forty minutes or so. So it was, it was quite severe, and the British Army at the start took the brunt of uh, of the violence in the in the opening few years. It was deeply sectarian because it did it it, it put one sort of side of the community, uh, a nationalist side, against a unionist side, and it just so happens um, the biggest definer in that is actually Protestant and Catholic. So a lot of people at the start of the, the, the Troubles, especially people who weren't from here, were coming in and going, oh, it's Protestant against Catholic. And you're going, no, it's not. It, it just so happens these are the two blocks, but it's not a sort of religious conflict the way you'd see in, in, in places today with, with Al-Qaeda itself. So the, the Troubles was essentially a, a group of Republicans, a small group of Republicans, Republicans, hardline Republicans, um, looking to uh, create a united Ireland and get what they see as the unlawful occupier, uh, the British state, out uh, and to have an independent Ireland. Um, and they wanted to do that through force of arms. Um, so they ignored the uh, the democratic setup in politics and, and sort of tried to force this issue. And what many would see would be force uh, a, a unionist community into a united Ireland against their will. Uh, then you have, when you have that, you have the reaction of the state. And at times, as often happens in these conflicts, the state tends to become part of the problem as opposed to the solution. Um, for the first four or five years, the state, as people would say, don't, don't interrupt your enemy when he's making mistake, mistakes. So the state was playing into the, ha the hands of extremists. And probably the next 20 years, it was a matter of of trying not to make mistakes and actually recover from a lot of those those setbacks, uh, but essentially the, the the contest was about unifying unifying Ireland, uh, and it ended with the, the Belfast Agreement officially in, in 1998. Now um, we're going to be talking about the IRA. So um, when we mention the IRA, many listeners will assume that the IRA is a single coherent group, but that's not the case. Um, the IRA seems to have gone through many iterations in its history. Can you kind of give us a dummy's guide, if you will, to the different iterations of the IRA? Yeah, I suppose that it all starts from early 1800s. Again, you know, it's, it's British rule in Ireland, where, where people, Republicans, they've seen this as a bad thing. You would have had what they call the Fenian uh, Uprising, which at that stage was the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They eventually turned into what we know as the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, and that would be the IRA, famously in history, of Michael Collins, you know, the, you know, the 
War of Independence, uh, you know, the, the Easter Rising aspects like that, where people can relate to the IRA of Collins. And essentially the IRA of Collins became a popular uprising, so it was, it was popularly supported. What happened uh, around the late 1950s, there was a, a border campaign by what we would now call the official IRA. And it was uh, it was quickly put down by security forces in both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, it was put down very effectively by essentially by internment happening on both sides of the border at the same time. Then with the civil rights protests uh, in the late 1960s, what we what came to the fore was a, a new brand of IRA called the Provisional IRA, and it essentially it had to contest that Republican ground with the official IRA, and it it wiped it wiped out the the Provisional IRA with, with ridiculous ease. No one had seen anything as as brutal or as effective as the Provisionals. And what I would say, they were the, the Islamic State of their day, and this the state just didn't know how to, to deal with them. There were old IRA men would have warned young provisionals that not to embark in the path that they were looking to go down because it was deeply sectarian, and it would only ruin their chances of a united Ireland and and, base, and, and essentially put that aspiration back because they're going to drive a wage uh, between the communities. So they they seen old IRA men seen the new provisionals as bigots. Essentially, the IRA if, if we think about you know the IRA of, of Martin McGuinness uh, who passed away was it day yesterday or the day before yeah. that it essentially McGuinness brought the you know the IRA to the negotiating table and um, he represented them and he brought the the provisional brand of IRA into the mainstream. Unfortunately, the Republican movement didn't bring everyone with them. So you had different small sections breaking off, which would have been the real IRA we have today, the continuity IRA, and the latest one is the new IRA. But these are much smaller than what the provisionals would have been. Uh, they're very tiny. They're not as coherent. and They're nowhere as well organized. And they're not as uh, popularly supported as the provisionals would have been. Yeah, how how big were the IRA, and did they have popular support in Ireland? Well, we talk sort of when we talk about the sort of the provisionals, you know, the IRA of the, the troubles. Essentially, we're looking at five hundred activists, so it was tiny. Um, you know, you, you turn around going, that's five hundred terrorists essentially that was was keeping a the whole the whole conflict going and and prolonging it. So it was it was small. Uh, it was cellular, and they, they'd structured they'd structured it so that they could continue the, the conflict as long as possible. Because when they were too big at the at the, at the start, they were too easily easily infiltrated by the security agencies. So they wanted to keep it tighter, um, so they could uh, monitor their their own people to see who was leaking information or not. And can you talk us a little bit about this? Give us kind of like. Um an overview of like the structure of the IRA and how they operate. So you mentioned the cellular and stuff, um, and I know they're like um, there was a kind of ruling council and things like that. Could you just tell us a bit about how the IRA sort of structure? A lot of it, you, you'll find a lot of books, and they'll be talking about you know the Provisional Army Council, which was a an army council of of, of seven men. 
you'd, you would have your Northern Command, your Southern Command, your GHQ, uh, a brigade structure, which was a nominal notion of, of having uh, a group of active service units, as they would call them, maybe four or six people in an active service unit, just in a certain location. But it all boils down to uh, the IRA was controlled by just a handful of people, and you're looking at two or three people who controlled it from the mid-70s up until the Belfast Agreement in 1998. So a lot, of the, a lot of the talk about committees and army councils and Northern Southern Command is a smokescreen because it was, a, it was the same people who actually put their people in these different committees and these different uh, posts to control the armed struggle as they, as they saw it. So there was, in that respect, there was great cr- continuity and there was a lot of very clever strategic thinkers at the top um, who kept the movement going forward. Were they trying to make it appear bigger than it actually was? I think uh, um, not necessarily. They were trying to make it out that it was a more popular than it was when, when actually the, their cause of a unified Ireland, that every nationalist would support the cause, but the majority of nationalists and almost every unionist deplored what they were actually doing, the, the armed struggle. So in that regard, they were deeply unpopular movement, but they had to, to give the pretense that they were de- the defenders of uh, the Catholic community that was being repressed by this evil British state, this old spectre of colonialism, etc. So they had to give this this viewpoint and, and create this illusion within their community that they were protecting and, and defending them. And to the outside world, that they, they were a, a popular movement when the opposite was actually true. They were deeply unpopular. Their cause of United Ireland, yes, a lot of people uh, would, would agree with that. But the way they were going about it, it didn't didn't have a popular support at all. Yeah. Well, this is yeah, it's a good segue. Actually, I mean, discussing RA does become quite a controversial area in a similar way to discussing the terrorist activities of groups um, such as ISIS and Al Qaeda today. There are a few people on the British left um, who like to paint the IRA as some sort of noble freedom fighters standing up to British imperialism. And you mentioned in your book that the IRA went to great lengths to condition Republicans that every civilian death caused by them was actually the fault of the British government. Can you just talk to us a bit about this sort of complex sort of um, area? Yeah, I think uh, republicanism, you know, the, the sort of the Che Guevara's, etc. of this world, it's, you're going to have the, the, the left of the sort of political spectrum, you know, gravitates towards that notion of um, a brutal state or oppressive state and the... The, the poor, the sort of the poor peasants rise, rising up against this who have been treating un, treated unfairly, and to an extent, you know that is true. The, the causes of the conflict here in, in fifty years of, of unionist misrule was appalling, and it and it, it did nothing for uh, young Catholics growing up at that time to, to see that this was a, a just society. So there's an aspect of that you can un, you can understand the the difficulty arises when you, when you look at what was happening in the world at, at that time, that yes, there was issues in Northern Ireland, but there was far bigger issues in, in the US with the African-Americans, etc. But there was no conflict happened there. There was far bigger issues in other parts of Europe, 
but there wasn't a, a conflict that happened there. So what is it where people decide to take up arms and essentially kill their neighbours uh, and attack police and regard them as legitimate targets? It's how do you how does a movement portray itself as, as doing this and this is the just and the right thing to do? And that the left spectrum of the political organization would turn around and have a degree of sympathy and empathy and, and at times support it to go, yep, I, I can see where they're coming from and we need to listen more more to them. And I think a lot of that, the, the propaganda machine of, of the IRA was just out of this world when it came to demonizing and tainting the state and portraying them in a really bad light, but at the same time presenting the, the IRA as, as some form of a, a noble sort of peacemaker who who has been forced into this position against their, their own will um, and and has to take up arms because the situation is that dire and it's, it's, it's a dictatorship that they're trying to overthrow. And, and I think when, when you have that that view of this of a situation like this, it starts to confuse people because you're going, well, this was a liberal democracy. People totally ignored the ballot box in the democratic process. So when when you discard that, you, you can't turn around and start to say you're a victim or you're a freedom fighter or there's something noble. Uh, exactly the opposite. And the tactics that they used here were absolutely brutal. You know, were the return round that, that struck people, civilians, into lorries packed with explosives and, and, and forced them to drive to security uh, bases and, and detonated the switch remotely and, and killed them and killed the soldiers. So there was there's an ugly side to the IRA that the sort of liberal left usually tend to ignore, sadly, uh, which means we don't get a really full understanding of what the, of what the threat was like and we get this utopian idea of how you can deal with this threat. It's nearly as if if we just hug all these people and be really nice to them and, and treat them decently. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do any of that, but it's just that that in itself will actually make them go away. And if we do that, ultimately they will stop. Probably a long-winded answer to a short question. <laughs> no, but it's good. I mean, yeah, I mean, we'd love to be able to um, hug people and stop them from turning to violence, but sadly it's just not a practical solution to that problem, is it? Can you talk to us a bit about the IRA's relationship with Sinn Féin? Because Sinn Féin comes up a lot when, when we talk about the sort of politics of the IRA. Yeah, and, and again, when you're looking at the IRA of the Troubles, the Provisionals, it's the provisional IRA and their political partner was provisional Sinn Féin. So that on one arm you had the military side and, and the other you had the political. And the political arm was essentially the propaganda wing. And it was probably more effective uh, than the military wing. Everyone you know can see Canary Wharf, bombs going off in Manchester and London, the bombs going off in Belfast. People can visualise that. The propaganda aspect, which... Uh, the US president at the moment is drawing people's attention to this sort of fake news, etc. People didn't really see that aspect uh, back in the day where this was basically being churned out all the time. So immediately that the IRA uh, would commit some atrocity, you would have the propagandists getting in and excusing it and blaming it then on the, on the British. You know, on the British, that would be the 
beasts and military or whoever, but always putting the blame on other people, that they've been forced into this awful position where they're having to do this, but it's not their fault, it's the fault of, of everyone else. So the political arm at, at the start essentially was the propaganda arm, and the two of them worked hand in glove to control their community. And at the top, uh, the, you know, those handful, those two or three people who run it, were essentially in the IRA and Sinn Féin. They were both. It's one and the same. They were all part of an insurgent network that, that wanted to destroy the state. Uh, and they were very clever, that the, the, the way that the two parts uh, worked. But you had the, mil- the military side and the political side. When it came into the way the political side operated in their own community was, was very clever because they were nearly trying to replace the police. So people would, if it's anti-social behaviour, they'd report it to uh, a Sinn Féin councillor, provisional Sinn Féin councillor, and that would find its way into the IRA organisation. Next thing you have a kangaroo court, and next thing you have what they call a, a punishment shooting on maybe some 14 or 15-year-old who's been accused of uh, stealing cars or anti-social behaviour. So the two of them are very clever, the way they, they controlled their community, number one, which was their base, their small base of support, and number two, how to project an image that this isn't the IRA's fault, that these are basically good people, but it's the fault of the state and the, and the evil British. So it was always a two-pronged, it was a two-pronged attack. You were, you're being hit in two fronts by the military side and the propaganda side. Yeah, and we, we fair enough, with... Um ISIS now, Qaeda, there's sort of a similar-ish kind of strategy. I don't know if you have any sort of Oh, yes, yes. It's, it, it worked in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and did some work with the, the Free Syrian police. And if you imagine now with social media, the internet, etc., this has just been boosted immeasurably where people can get these half-truths and lies out, wrapped around some loose facts, put it out there and conditioning people or people they would see as uh, trying to reach out to her, potentially sympathetic to their cause, to turn around and go, look, this is what's happened here, when actually it didn't happen. But it's people, sadly now, people just read the headline. They, they don't tend to investigate beyond the headline or or they don't go and check something to go, eh, that just doesn't, that doesn't weigh up. Um, but but now it's it's even, it's more, it's easier to do from the sort of, I would say, from the bad guy side uh, than it is for the state. So the, the state now, wherever that is, I know the US had really uh, uh, difficult problems with this, especially in Iraq at the start when it came to uh, allegations of prisoner abuse, etc. It was how to stem this, this propaganda, how to counter it, because it just seemed to be coming from everywhere, from so many different angles. And the problem is if you fight propaganda, propaganda, um our side will probably get discovered and end up on in the uh, Guardian or the Intercept or something like that. Yeah, and that that is it. It's probably from a, from a special branch perspective. You know, the, the people, the research I did and the officers I interviewed, uh, and the the documents I looked at, you could see none of them were interested in counter propaganda. They weren't even interested in a communication strategy to get someone in government or a, a senior police officer to to sort of. Uh, put to bed a method to counter a myth. They, they were just focused on, right, how to stop the military side. So the, the propaganda side, while it sort of 
to an extent it annoyed them. It didn't really annoy them that much. Their their task was just essentially was to catch these people, to protect life, number one, and catch the main perpetrators and put them behind bars. And, and the more effective you are at that, the more chance there is of the conflict ending. So it was probably naively special branch were hoping that the British establishment, the government, the politicians would look after the, the strategy to actually represent them in a good light, which never really, it was one of the things, it was one of the feelings of the security strategy in, in Northern Ireland. There was, there was no real coherent communication strategy to represent what the state was doing. And intelligence, it, it's even more difficult because you can't, to do that, a lot of the times you have to start revealing your secrets, which actually just plays into the hands of the other side, uh, which they obviously know, which which means that intelligence is such a juicy, easy target. Yeah. Now, um, back to your book and the Iration Fein relationship, it seemed to be the Sinn Fein strategy, sorry, the Iration Fein strategy, was to divide the Catholic and Protestant community. Can you talk to us a little bit about how they did that? First and foremost, it's, it's a historic template. It, it, it's quite easy. The, the, the most physical manifestation of the state uh, and the rule of law are police officers, frontline uniformed police officers, the sort of British bobby, the, the cop walking down the street. So first and foremost, you need to get the, the police out of the areas that you want to control. The sort of Republican areas for the IRA. And to do that, you start to, to murder police, attack police. You make it very difficult for them to, to, to police the police normally. And you force the police almost back into barracks. And, and what that did here, it even forced the army to take over the sort of rule of law role for a few years at the very start of the conflict. So you, you basically marginalize the police from an area. You, you taint the police as anti, what happened here is anti whatever you are. In Northern Ireland, the police were tainted as anti-Catholic. They were sectarian. They were representing British rule in Ireland. They were not uh, a neutral law enforcement organisation. Uh, they were an instrument of unionist domination, according to this, this viewpoint. They, um, they were seen as part of the problem and not part of the solution. They were seen as re repressive as tortures, as people who conspired with loyalist terrorists to kill innocent Catholics. So this was, the what, first and foremost, what you have to do is undermine the rule of law. And you do that by attacking the police to say that the police are not part of us. In fact, the police are trying to kill us and we're here to protect you. Number two, you look to draw the other side into the equation because then that, that, a uh, that strengthens your whole of your community, of your base. So the the effect of that is that, that here the you could see the security, the, the security aim was at all costs to try and prevent the loyalists from getting involved in the conflict because in the first few years the loyalists weren't loyalist terrorist organizations were not really killing anyone. It was all the sort of Republican side. So the, the whole thing was, how do we stop this becoming a sectarian war? But what the provisional IRA had to, to, to start was a sectarian tit-for-tat war. And they did that by killing innocent Protestants. And they did that by um, attacking police and, and killing police and soldiers. And then eventually what's happened, they drew the loyalist side 
into a conflict and all of a sudden you have your tit-for-tat sectarian murders. Um, and that just plays totally into their hands. Then when you have, uh, you know, you, these socially deprived areas where you had people, Protestant and Catholics living peacefully side by side, all of a sudden, Catholics couldn't live in one part of the city uh, and they had to get up and move. Protestants couldn't live in another part. They had to get up and move. And they all moved into areas which were just exclusively Protestant or Catholic, which played into the hands of uh, the IRA and also then played into the hands of loyalist terrorist organisations because they controlled these. And it's usually the poorest and the most vulnerable in society who suffer, sadly. And the IRA did exactly what Al-Qaeda in Iraq did in Iraq at the early start, and they, they're doing it, and the Taliban is copying it, and Islamic State cop, it copies it. This is what a modern insurgent network does. This is how it keeps control of its base. Uh, and the IRA essentially established a template for, for all of these people to follow and did it very effectively. Yeah, and... and have um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS um, actually sort of, is there evidence that they've actually studied the IRA or even, you know, spoken to them or anything like that? Uh, haven't, I, I don't know about a, haven't spoken to them, but they have studied them. Um, there's Peter Bergen um, wrote a great book um, on 9-11 and he'd interviewed uh, Osama bin Laden before 9-11 and he was... He was he related. I, I met uh, Peter in, in the US uh, a few years ago, and I was fascinated by this. Uh, and he was saying how Bin Laden was basically so interested he was following the Northern Ireland peace process. Um, he was following it intently. Um, and from what I can see, Bin Laden saw himself as a Jerry Adams. That yes, at the moment the West is going to they're going to say I'm a monk. I'm, I'm evil and, and, and I, need to be, I need to be killed or whatever, he says. But eventually, they'll actually change that definition because this is what the West done. They have no moral principles. They will turn around, they'll see me as a peacemaker, and they'll parade me at the White House uh, because, of, because the West has no appetite to get involved in these long wars. So to that extent, you don't know how much the peace process actually encouraged al-Qaeda's leader at that point in time. There's also different articles that were um, good academic articles written at the, the start of the Iraq War in 2003-4-5 when, if you remember, the conventional war was over in about 10 days, two weeks. Conventional forces just totally obliterated the Iraqi army. Um, and then after that, it became this irregular war. You know, ambushes, um, the roadside bombs, sniper attacks where people... The other side didn't dress in a uniform, they just dressed in civilians and melted into the civilian crowd. That's what caused the, the coalition uh, so many problems and issues. What was happened is they studied these networks, these emerging networks, studied the Northern Ireland conflict and copied all the tactics that the IRA had. The roadside bombs, the secondary devices, um, how to lure the security forces into an instant and then create more casualties by having a secondary and even third device hidden to go off 30 minutes later, etc. So a lot of people at the start of the Iraq conflict were starting to, to quite quickly to go, what would the security lessons learned from here in Northern Ireland? 
but by that stage, it was too late. The irregular war had, had well and truly taken grip, and it was uh, as now got to this stage, it was the West was starting to pull out. So nobody was predicting what what would uh, a military force do, or what would the opposition do when they're when they're weaker than than the coalition? What way are they going to fight? And it should have, looking back, I know hindsight's perfect sense, but looking back, somebody should have been thinking, but hold on, we're, we're going to we're going to win this very quickly. This is probably what these people are going to do because traditionally this is what happens when you're outnumbered and you're a smaller force that you just have a you've a regular war because you can't actually be seen to to enter into a, a sort of a face-on fight or a, a front-up fight with the with the opponent. You, you have to you have to adapt to the circumstances. You have to use guerrilla tactics, and they use guerrilla tactics from Northern Ireland with devastating effect. And it appears, we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but it is, it's good to talk about this. It appears from your book that um, some of the lessons from the conflict in Northern Ireland were somehow forgotten by the time it came to actually going to Iraq and Afghanistan, um, especially with, and we'll go into more details in a minute, but um, the failure to use kind of like the special branch model, because it, it appeared that the um, coalition forces were trying to use the regular police of both Iraq and Afghanistan, but using a kind of a peacetime policing model and not a kind of conflict policing model, which special branch would reflect. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it's, 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 it's probably like one of those things, it would be another book nearly to explain it, that the, the, the special branch model is the heartbeat of the what you would call the, the Irish constabulary model, the, the model of the, the Royal Irish Constabulary which the Royal Ulster Constabulary followed and updated. So Special Branch is a small intelligence department that sits within that. This was the model that the British used with great effect all over the world for hostile territories. Um, and if you look at the sort of the days of, of, of Empire, it was a, a navy that ruled the seas, a small expeditionary army. And then when they went to places like India or wherever, they actually set up a constabulary. And in the middle of that constabulary was a special branch. And these different cultures just bought into this semi-military model. They liked it. This is, this is, this is, they preferred this far better than the British Bobby model of policing. Plus, the British Bobby model of policing wouldn't have survived because this model is just a bit, it, it's, it's harsh and aggressive when it needs to be, but it, it can also uh, be the, the nice, soft, fluffy sort of style of policing that it also needs to be. But this, if you imagine this model was exported with and did magnificently well in different hostile areas. And in many of these places, it still exists and it's been developed. So in the West, the last place that this model was tested and worked against uh, a threat of, of the kind that was now being faced in Iraq and Afghanistan was Northern Ireland. But for various reasons, the US, UK, different coalition partners, they were bringing in the notion of, well, what works currently in Boston or New York or, or Berlin or Manchester? And to turn around and go, right, let's give that to these people. This is best practice in policing today, and let's see how that works. And it was, it was like giving... You know, a small, a small mini to, to people when they needed a big four by four. <laughs> and, and the people just didn't, they, 
I think that the police experts who were brought out were trying their best, but none of them, none of them that I met at the start had actually placed a conflict. And there's really fundamental differences in policing a conflict and policing peacetime. And the one is that it's intelligence is going to direct everything, which is just, that's totally alien to modern police chiefs because modern police forces are investigative-led, which should be the way that's right proper. But in a conflict, that doesn't happen. Intelligence, it is, it is true intelligence-led policing, and the investigative arm supports it. And that's a real fundamental shift, which a lot of people couldn't understand. And the whole concept of what, what the British approach used to be to this was set up a single constabulary. So that IE set up one police organization, Whereas when they went to Iraq, it was nearly the U.S. model where you had a sheriff's department, the highway patrol, and it became not many law enforcement agencies and not many intelligence agencies. It became very confused. And this went against not only, you know, that wouldn't work in a conflict of this type, but even the U.S. experience in recent wars was don't set up too many police organizations. You know, just set up the one, have an intelligence model at its heart. So essentially, the special branch model was the thing that worked. Now, why that didn't go, it's essentially your police experts didn't really know about it. They knew about how they policed their area, so that is what they were telling the, the, the military commanders who were trying to introduce the rule of law. And um, Also, it would have been the peace process here, where the security aspect of, of the conflict was just totally buried. It was sidelined. Nobody wanted to talk about security. Everything was about bringing in the sort of former terrorists into a, a devolved government that they'd vowed to overthrow. It, it wasn't by embarrassing anyone to go, well, actually, you need to sort of pushed here to an extent by a really effective security response. So security dropped off the radar because it was bigger political considerations and, and people were fixated with, let's just cement the peace process here. Let's consolidate it. And at the world stage, you would have had Prime Minister Blair and, and people he to work with to bring it about. That's the concept they promoted. This Northern Ireland peace model didn't include security. It was just a matter of we end the conflict by talking to terrorists. It's as simple as that. This is how we brought peace to Northern Ireland. There was nothing about the sort of the 70s and the 80s, which were quite brutal, and some of the early 90s. That all was just forgotten. So from here, there was no encouragement or nobody actively saying to the U.S. or anyone else, we've got uh, great practices and lessons learned from here, which, which could help coalition forces and could help the people in these countries to bring, make these places more stable and safer. And probably the last aspect is political correctness. At that stage, through new labor, it had just sort of paralyzed uh, a lot of debate in this topic. So the special branch model was just seen as not accountable enough, not human rights compliant enough, um, and it was just seen as too tough and too out of date and too archaic uh, for for the liberal sensitivities of, of 2003. It was policing by nature is controversial, and politicians don't want controversy. And it's if you think it's controversial, you know, in somewhere like London or or, 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 or Glasgow or wherever, when there's 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 some uh, where there's a murder or, or a, an outbreak of violence, you know, you multiply that by a hundred, maybe a thousand, in a conflict, 
So it's, it's nearly the, the special branch model in the RIC was maybe just too controversial uh, for policymakers and politicians to turn around and say, this is actually what you need. This is what we did. You see, when we were faced with the same threat as you, this is what we used. And sadly, we didn't do that. We actually said to these people, this is a threat. We were faced with the same threat, but don't do what we did. This is what we want you to do. And a, a lot of it, the, the people I talk to, Americans, Iraqis, Afghans, people from here who work in a few conflicts, were just saying it was complete nonsense. We, we, we brought over like volumes of bureaucracy and policy, translated it into Pashtun or Arabic and give it to the, these poor guys and then wonder why they were, they were bewildered. When it comes to the peace process, is this sort of, I'll call it a narrative because I can't think of a better way to put it, but that it was just talking to terrorists that somehow ended the conflict in, in Northern Ireland and that it completely forgets the special branch um, aspect. And, you know, your book, which is sort of titled The, the Secret Victory, um, you know, basically it's the efforts of special branch that, in a sense, forced the IRA into a ceasefire, isn't it? And that's what ultimately um, kind of forced their hand, which led to the peace process. And it seems to be that sort of has been forgotten. Um, I don't know if you want to sort of talk a bit about that. Yeah, I... I and it's... To go back to that model, special branch, if, if, if you and I went today, we'll say it's to Libya, um, they're looking, you know, they'll be looking at an international uh, intervention there to try and help Libya. And invariably they'll want the rule of law. How do we create a rule of law approach in Libya so that Libya will sort of look like roughly what we look like in the West? Now, you, me and you could just bring the special branch aspect and go, this will work, and it won't. What the special branch aspect is totally useless if you don't have a police organization that is professional. And I mean frontline, uniformed police officers who people meet on a daily basis because the majority of the population are never going to meet a special branch officer. They're never going to bump into special forces. That, that just doesn't really happen. So it's like the front line has to be professional, it has to be impartial, it has to be fair, where all of a sudden people who necessarily mightn't support the state, they're seeing someone and they're going, I can relate to that woman, to that man, you know, they treated me fairly, they're quite decent. If you have that, if you have the, the wider police organisation effective and professional, as professional as that, special branch then can direct everything. The two, again, the two are inseparable. You can start a special branch, but what's it part of? You know, in isolation, is it going to be effective? Probably not. It needs it needs an effective police organisation that it is integrated throughout and it's directing to help police to be help to help police to be clever uh, in the way certain areas are are placed where somewhere which is very hostile will be slightly different from somewhere which is actually now it's very supportive of the government um, and people can go about their daily shops and there's no bombs and there's no murders happening so in that, in that respect the, the special branch model relies on a really professional police organisation so it's probably my fault in the book maybe I should have spelt that out more that it, it wasn't special branch in itself that defeated the IRA. Special branch was just, for many, 
it was the fulcrum. It epitomized the security response that was actually very smart and very effective, and it was very fair. And um, where you had the British Army uh, and the professional professionalism of the British Army was immense, where you had the military support, the rule of law, and the police. And it was how the two of those coordinated and cooperated uh, with the police in charge and pole position was actually a superb example of what is needed uh, since then, but where nowhere has really got. So it's there was a whole security apparatus here, and I suppose towards the end it was Special Branch that was the one, even though Special Branch is tiny, it was the one sort of guiding it uh, where it should go and what way it should behave, who were the suspects, what type of tactics the terrorists were using, etc. So policing became very clever and it became very smart, um, but it was so much more than just a, a small special branch organisation. You know, frontline police officers, uh, you know, soldiers, frontline soldiers. That was essentially that's what beat uh, the IRA was that whole entity. Um, if if you know what I mean, hopefully. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Is 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 a relationship? Is is one part of a a bigger component? But it's yeah. I mean, like with special branch, because special branch is about gathering intelligence, isn't it? It's about um, uh, finding informants um, to sort of tip off the security services to what might be happening. And on top of that, um, the police, the frontline police are also, um, with their interactions and things, able to kind of gather information that could be passed to Special Branch. So am I right in thinking Special Branch kind of keeping an eye on the, the slightly bigger picture, aren't they? Yeah, the Special Branch were, they were, they were different from the sort of the rest of the police family because they designed the Official Secrets Act. So in that regard, they had an added onus that, that an added difficulty that the rest of the police family didn't because there's things they just couldn't say. So they were, their task essentially was national security. How do we stabilize the, the state? How do we make this place safer? So it was, yes, they're, they're police officers, but they're, the, whole, the whole mission was against terrorist organizations and it was to infiltrate them for the purpose of actually degrading them to a point where these terrorist organizations really ceased to exist. And it was, it was about the rule of law, weaponizing the rule of law, were the last thing that the, the IRA and, and loyalist terrorist organizations wanted was their people going to, to prison for 20, 25 years, which was, an, which was happening with an increasing regularity uh, towards the latter half of the conflict. Let's, let's talk a bit more about um, the kind of organizational aspect of Special Branch. Um, so Special Branch were using both signals intelligence to gather information as well as human sources, sort of uh, informants or in spy parlance agents. And I think 60% of the intelligence um, the Special Branch um, was looking for came from human sources. Um, and he mentioned in your book that these agents um, were, you know, deep within the uh, Republican terrorist organizations and they potentially saved about 6,500 lives. And apparently there were 15 well-placed agents within the IRA at any one time. Um, can you just tell us about the sort of types of people who would become agents for a special branch and how special branch sort of recruited them and what kind of information they were looking for from those people? I suppose there's no set, there's no set template for, you know, who would, who would basically uh, become an agent. That is someone 
who is now giving information to to the police, which is going to start crime within the organisation that they're, they're a part of. So there's there's no real set template. Um, what you were from a special branch perspective, you're looking for the least hardliners. Now that's difficult a lot of times for the public uh, to understand, especially for maybe somebody. Uh, there's been an agent who has been outed or the press are saying this person's an agent, etc. Then the media will turn around, this is what we suspect this person to have done and people will be appalled and rightly so. And you're going, but yes, but that person, let's say that person is an agent, but in comparison to the rest, this is the, this is the, the person who is the least hardest. This is the person who is, isn't, doesn't, doesn't want things to happen the way the other people want. This is this is the least worst of a bad situation, essentially. But unless you know everybody or everyone who is in a, an active service unit or brigade, it's very hard for people to sort of judge, yeah, I can see why you picked this person because he was the softest of the bunch. This person's heart really isn't in it and he's not as active as the rest. He's not as belligerent. He's not as extreme in his views. And a lot of that is is part of your profile or what you would call like a targeting pack when you when you're looking at who are you who are special branch going to recruit. So you're looking at the unit and you're looking at the, the person who has some redeeming qualities to go, yep, um I think yep, I, I think that I think that guy would potentially if we get alongside him, I think he would talk to us. I think there's something about him where he doesn't really agree with this armed struggle. He's not at the forefront of any of this. He's not the psychopathic gunman who is just loves the you know loves the aspect of killing and gets a kick from it. He's not the uh, diehard ideologue, <laughs> or that some of them are. So it's it's this this profile, which it's part scientific, part sort of a gut feeling to turn around and go, "Yep, I think this is a this is a guy we could do business with." And some of the times, people who got into the IRA got in there, seen all of a sudden for the first time, seen what an incident looked like, um, whether that was their victim um, or the what, what happened after a bomb blast, and not just they, they're thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I don't mind the the language of you know Brits out and. Uh, and SSRUC and all this, but when I see this up close, oh, this is I, I, I don't want to be part of this. And there's there's people within the IRA had a conscience, and they seen this is wrong, and the only way of stopping it was actually to tell the police. It's not to say that everybody uh, was of 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 that mindset, you know, where people were righteous, but by and large, a lot of the people who became ages agents. Just didn't agree with the with the Republican movement and the Republican goals, what they were doing at that point in time, and were probably ahead of their time to an ex- extent because they seen the armed struggle going nowhere is utterly futile. When the leadership was still saying we're going to unify our unify Ireland, you know, a lot of volunteers were thinking that's utter nonsense. We have absolutely no chance, and we're being sold a huge lie here, and so are people who are supporting us. All this is doing is prolonging conflict, and people are getting killed needlessly. So there's that's an uncomfortable that's uncomfortable for Republicans because it's basically saying everything 
that the provisional IRA and provisional Sinn Féin did, promoted and praised, was a lie and it was needless and it was wrong. And people within their organization were actually turned around saying, I'm going to help, I'm going to help you expose this, I'm going to help stop this organization because it is wrong. And in, within the IRA, there was a kind of a, from the sort of 70s onwards, there was a, a kind of a war against potential informants, wasn't there? There, there was um, the risk of being executed, and um, and on top of that, they would interrogate suspected informants, and uh, and I think they would kind of encourage them to badmouth the security services and say that they'd been forced into being an informant and things like that, in the belief that that would save their lives. Um, can you talk to us a bit about the risks to informants? I, I think to become, you know, to. To be a member of a terrorist organization and then talk to the police in a sort of in a, a confidential manner as an agent did was it was life changing. Everything from that point on, everything changed. Uh, every word, every thought they had, they, they, it had to be very guarded because now, you know, one careless slip up and potentially they were dead because general order number one of the IRA their foremost policy was to execute and brackets collaborators. And agents, stroke informants, were top of that packing order. Anyone they suspected whatsoever of talking to the police was under suspicion and would be interviewed at times interrogated. And they were absolutely brutal and merciless about this um, to their shame. And it, it's something now that, you know, they obviously find difficult to, to sort of look back and a lot of people want to ignore. But I had in the book, I think I had it around, you know, just over 80. But I'm sure I've missed some. I'm sure the figure's more uh, towards 100, which is twice the number. The, the killed, the murdered people, twice the number of people the entire police organization did over the life of the conflict. You know, I think the, the, the police killed uh, 48 people, which was tragic. The IRA executed almost twice that, which is phenomenal. It even exceeds that of when I was looking at Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, Boko Haram. These people at times, when they take members of the security forces or, or people even think are uh, suspected informers, but security forces especially, they executed, the IRA executed every member of the security forces they took prisoner often after uh, horrific torture, where even even Islamic State release members of the security forces. At times it will be the release because they'll get prisoners released or whatever. And you're going, so there was that, there was that really cruel aspect where the IRA wanted to send out a message. Again, this is about controlling your base, that anybody who talks to the police, this is the way they'll be treated. So if we go back to what, what is the characters and behavioural norms of an organisation like this? It's distancing the police from the community. So if you, not only are you trying to murder police, anybody who's talking to the police, you're going to murder them. And the whole concept is, so you essentially become the police, you police that area. You are the quasi-government of that area. Uh, you're preparing yourself essentially for government. And the signal they sent out, they had to, they used the media with great effect. The, the point where they'd, they'd leave at times, it would be someone who's been executed for collaborating, they'd leave their body on the border, attached to uh, booby trap landmines, etc. 
which which they knew would take three or four days for the security forces to clear. At, at that stage, the media, the press coverage was just maybe getting a glimpse of a half-naked body at, at the side of a road or at a hedge, and that just sent out a, a very powerful message to their community that nobody talks to nobody talks to the police. Loose lips, loose lips, loose lips sink ships, essentially. But you can see the whole ethos was, you know, we're in control and you do not talk to anyone else, especially the police. And am I right in thinking it wasn't even just informants who suffered some of this treatment? It was even people who gave um, like medical aid to police officers or wounded soldiers. Is that right? Yes. Well, there's 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 several, at least several incidents, and probably the most famous is Jim McConville. You know, where if you if if you read a lot of the books about a Jean McConville, it was she was she was targeted and she was murdered because she actually went out to help a, a soldier who'd been wounded and I think might have died. She she went out and actually showed some some mercy and compassion within that community. That was that was a signal that well if, if she she shows that what else is she doing essentially. And that was seen as, no, you, you can't do that because these people are, this is the repressive occupier. So they put that down, you know, a, a lot of works actually put that down to why she was abducted, disappeared, and why the IRA denied it for almost 30 years up, in, up until recently. Yeah, yeah. Chilling stuff, really. Um, and am I right in thinking that, that even... Uh, you know, agents who work for special branches are still at risk today. For sure, I think it's republicanism. Our provisional brand of it is retributive without a question. It's, it's a very long memory, and it, it doesn't forget. And a lot, a lot of what Republicans are, are are still looking for is, especially with successful operations against them, where the people ended up, a IRM men ended up dead, shot dead by the SAS or are serving long life sentences. They want to know where the leak came from. They still do. You know, there's that, there's that, there's an unhealthy paranoia in the Republican movement about informers that it, it probably was a force multiplier because if, if there was a change in the wind, that nearly think special branches influenced that. And it, it just, it got to the stage, it, it was debilitating for some units where they actually thought, they thought Special Branch was everywhere. In fact, it wasn't. It was actually much smaller than the, the terrorist organizations it was up against. But that paranoia during the conflict helped because it helped prevent a lot of attacks. After the conflict, where we are now with a lot of the uh, the legacy inquests, etc., it works against you because they're, it's, they're basically saying you were everywhere um, and nobody's actually saying you, you can't prove that you weren't. <laughs> Yeah, very true. And, and, and the um, there was a bit of a, there was a lot of focus on special branch itself. I think was it ten officers lost their lives in the line of duty. Yes, there was. There was a, a probably an interesting statistic. It, it's three of them, sort of thirty three percent were were Catholics. Special special branch, um, the IRA and loyalist terrorist organisations absolutely despise special branch. They seen the IRA in particular seen Special Branch as their greatest fear, and went all out to totally demonise it, more than any other section of the security apparatus. And the reason they did that was because Special Branch intimately understood them. Special Branch officer, 
uh, wasn't the type of person was coming in um, to give them a hard time. It was the type of person coming in to turn around and go, I understand where you come from. You know, that, that somebody who was knowledgeable about Irish history, uh, who knew that uh, 50 years of Unionist misrule was a major cause of the conflict, who could a- actually empathise with these people um, and came across as someone that turned around and go, they're quite knowledgeable and they're quite empathetic to what I went through. And that was the last thing that the, the IRA wanted was somebody sitting down with some knowledge and basically a shoulder to cry on if you want to turn around and go, I know what you've got here. At, at times, you're a victim of circumstances and maybe here's a way out. And that, for the Republican movement, that was a huge threat. So they had to make out that Special Branch was everything except that, where Special Branch were coming in to torture you, uh, to set you up where you couldn't trust Special Branch. So they went out of their way to show Special Branch as being the most bigoted and brutal aspect of the state. When you even look at the, you know, the officers who were murdered, 33, 33% of them were Catholics. So it didn't, even without that, that stat, it doesn't really add up what, what way that the, the Republican movement was trying to stigmatize this, this organization. Hmm. And those attitudes still live in, uh, still around today, aren't they? Because, um, you know, you talked a bit about, we talked a bit about it earlier with the peace process, and you've argued that the political end game of the peace process has been botched. And there seems to be a sense of that the, Ter- you know the terrorists and terrorist suspects have been um, are now being sort of portrayed as victims in a way. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, it, it's, it's I've talked to a few victims groups, uh, what they call let's say victims, innocent victims and survivors of terrorism, and they they are appalled as as most police officers that everybody it was simple who a victim was or what a victim was it was quite easy. It was somebody who suffered, you know. Um, from a terrorist attack, etc. It was it's quite plain, but all of a sudden, a victim is now uh, a terrorist who was trying to murder someone else, and the bomb that they were carrying maybe went off prematurely and left them injured. So now, not only are they a victim, um, they also want a pension, and the the whole victim aspect here in Northern Ireland and in general can't move on, and unless we include these people also as victims. And what I was trying to put across these people was a, a, a lady a, wrote a book called it The Death of Right and Wrong, and it was about 9-11. And she was appalled because some people on the left, the political left, were looking at the, the, the terrorists who flew the, the, the planes into the Twin Towers as victims and was trying to understand you know, their circumstances and, and saying this is awful, there is as much a victim as the people in the, uh, who died in the towers. And what this lady was saying, that's, a, that's utter nonsense. How on earth can you treat them as victims also? And essentially, it's that attitude. It's not just unique to here, uh, but it's just you, you can see why it's happening here. Probably for the, the, the old IRA or who are now sort of reformed in the Sinn Féin, they need to keep their, they need to talk to their constituents, their support base, to keep people sort of within mainstream republicanism. So they have to defend that aspect to go, we look after the people who've sort of fought for us and, and made sacrifices for us, so we need to stand up for 
uh, the armed struggle. We need to be justifying it and going forward. The difficulty with that, the armed struggle, people, uh, there was an ideology was used to justify murder, which is wrong. It was wrong then, it's wrong today. So the difficulty for politicians who would espouse this is that it's contradictory. You cannot on one hand say that and then turn around and condemn the attacks uh, in Brussels or, or New York or wherever the next attack's going to be because it's inconsistent. So the one thing about the rule of law, in 1969-1970, murder was the same thing as it is today with the, the provisional brand of IRA. They've now shifted where they're condemning murders of other terrorist organisations but are justifying what they did, um, which is, again, with this victimhood, this aspect where people people look at it and the moral boundaries are starting to be confused, whereas, but surely they were in the wrong side, who was in the right side? And because you've had such a fantastic propaganda attack against the state, this whole confusion about who is a terrorist, uh, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, uh, the, you know, the, the IRA always see themselves as victims or heroes, but never the perpetrators. And the same actually applies to, if you go to Iraq, these places, the same applies to terrorist organizations there. But they don't see themselves as the perpetrators. It's always the other side is to blame. Um, part of their existence is to blame the state, is to blame the opposition forces for, for what they've been forced into. So the whole victim aspect here uh, and the post-conflict aspect to do with the troubles has taken on a really morally warped um, approach where we've, we have we've become morally bankrupt in Northern Ireland just to keep cementing a peace process uh, and make it happen. What's happened to some of the special branch officers who were serving during that time? Well, where are they sort of now these days? Because some of them have left the force now, haven't they, and things like that? Yes, well, the, the, the majority would have left the force. Um, you, you find, I, I know there, there's a few have uh, no longer would even live in the UK. Uh, most, I would say, have still live in Northern Ireland, but they just, once they left the force, they just get on with their lives. Probably, like a lot of people, they'd look at the news, be frustrated by some of the headlines of how the past is being rewritten, but would just keep their head down and, you know, cut the grass, uh, trim the hedge, and, and just get on with, with their life. Uh, because Special Branch was a lifetime of, of basically remaining anonymous, uh, you know, and staying out of sight and not being visible. So, they're conditioned to do that, and for a lot of them, that's that's the way that they're just going to live their life out. You know, a lot, a lot of a lot of their friends and family wouldn't even know that they were in special branch, just that they were in the police. Because mm. yeah, when you mentioned about um, some of the terrorists sort of seeking compensation, it just reminded me a bit of um, there's a part in your book where you talk about some of the officers ended up taking early retirement, um, which had a sort of financial implications for them. Yeah, and it was, I think, a lot of especially. Especially junior officers, constables, sergeants, uh, all of a sudden there's a peace process. They're, they, and, and, and a lot of people's opinion, have been hung out to dry as a scapegoat to go, yep, yes, we can blame the old, you know, really, you know, the bad security forces, but especially special branch, they were 
uh, they were the, they were the worst of them all. And a lot of it, once the sort of the new policing arrangement kicked in, they just felt as if they were no longer wanted. Um, they felt as if they were a, a hindrance, and they, they didn't feel, feel as if there were any more value. Um, and a lot of them took it because they were just sick of the whole thing. And, and when you look at it, yes, it, it was a good financial package, but people were taking retirement, sort of 29, 30 years service, getting a full pension. But normally, people in that position, I talked to a few guys last week who read the book, and both of them, you know, they, they joined the police in the 1950s. You know, 45 years service. Traditionally, people in special branch work 40, 45 years because they just enjoyed the job. So to go off, you know, to be giving this sort of carrot of we'll give you, I think, an extra year or two years pay um, if you go off early, it, a lot of people just took it because they were sick of the whole thing and also thinking, well, that's a, that's a nice payday because they, they would never have seen money like that. You know, the policing was well paid, but it wasn't fabulously paid. But it was, when you take a step back, you're going, but you'd have worked another, you could have worked another 10, 15 years quite easily until you're sort of, you know, 60, 65, and you've enjoyed it. You know, so there's that aspect too. You know, people would say that, yes, there was good compensation. You're going, there wasn't, there wasn't. I'd say a lot of people would have just preferred to have actually kept their job and just kept working in something that they liked, as opposed to um, having the feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm no longer of use. In fact, people are saying I'm part of the problem now. I'll just take whatever they're offering and leave. Yeah, that's no, not good. So, William, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? And where can they find your excellent book as well? The, there's a, a website www.secretvictory.co.uk and the book is on Amazon there's a paperback edition there's Kindle and there's a audio version coming out uh, and I think you can also get it in uh, most most bookstores not sure if it's on the shelf but it, it might be in their database fantastic thank you thanks very much Chris um, it's very kind of you to, to sort of invite me to do this I really appreciate it thank you if you've enjoyed the show please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at drycleanercast for more information about the podcast please visit our website www.drycleanercast.co.uk thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast 